action. Welcome to Torn Stubbs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. 2020 underperformed, so we are not greenlighting a sequel. So to commemorate, we're running down our top three and our bottom three films of the year. What a year it's been. So many films got shelved. Although it did start off reasonably well because I was going to the cinema like twice a week yeah and i was i was definitely going to the cinema until the beginning of march yeah it's just it's just a shame that so many sort of big blockbusters ended up shelved for much of the year i mean that i think that it's been like a good and a bad thing in terms of like indie cinema because indie cinema has kind of come to the fore and there's always that constant mm. demand for new content and i think that the indie films have fared had fared have fared quite well because they've been getting more of a spotlight and a more you know, they've not been overshadowed by things like Black Widow and, and sort of Bond and uh, Top Gun 2 and things like that. So in some ways, it's been actually quite nice. It's quite been quite refreshing that there haven't been these huge films that just cast a shadow over everything else in cinema. Well, I think it's been an eye opening for the big studios. I think they're beginning to realise that they can't just rely on these big 150 million, 200 million tentpole films because if suddenly the exhibition aspect of the business model gets taken away, what the fuck are they going to do? They're all probably going to make a loss. Mm. Yeah, definitely. You can't just put Wonder Woman 84 on HBO Max and expect to get the billion-dollar revenue that they were expecting. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yes, it's going to be in the cinema over here, but it's not going to make a billion. Yeah. It's going to make like 300 or 400 million, and that's it. And that will barely cover the budget and the marketing cost. Mm. But does that mean that films are going to, you know, new films that get get made, are they going to have to have smaller budgets in order to make up for that that lack in revenue that splitting releases between cinema and streaming it will inevitably have? Probably. And I think that'll be a good thing. Mm. The mid-budget film disappeared over the yeah. past 10 years. Yeah, like the big 90s thrillers. Gone. Yeah, I've... I've been watching things like Single White Female <laughs> and um, Hand the Rocks the Cradle. Mm. Those are just mid-budget thrillers that have so much charm. Mm. There's such a reliance on CGI that, of course, these films are going to cost so much because they're made in a computer. They're basically animation. Yeah, but I just think that when you're when you're looking at TV shows, like I'm currently watching His Dark Materials, and the stuff that they do... And look at things like Game of Thrones, the things that they accomplish with a budget. I mean, it's still a lot of money, but compared to like Wonder Woman, which has a budget of what, $150 million or something. Looking at TV shows like His Dark Materials that are equally epic and actually longer, you know, it's, it's an eight hour series, the first series. And they still accomplish sort of almost movie style visuals and storytelling. And I wonder if there is a feeling of, well, if TV is doing such epic stuff on a smaller budget, then why are big blockbusters costing so much money to make? Because of the stars. Oh, yeah, it is the stars, isn't it? Robert Daniel Jr. is not going to do a film for less than yeah. 10, 15 million. Yeah, which is stupid money. Who needs that much money? Well, exactly. How much money do you need? Yeah, I mean, one million or two million. When is me. enough enough? He got paid like 80 million from the Iron Man films. Yeah. Iron Men? <laughs> from the Iron Men. of Iron Man is Iron Men films. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. hopefully cinema will return to a little bit calmer, a little bit less excessive. Mm. Because when you have those limitations, that's when your creativity yeah. comes to the fore and that's where your style comes from. That's why I've always leaned more towards watching indie mm -hmm. films because they're just so much... You know, the genius at play is just so much more enjoyable. Yeah. And also, you, they, they really do make you feel like, God, how did they manage to do that on such a small budget? Whereas with the big blockbusters, you're always going, God, that looks shit for how much money they paid to make it. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And they always bite off more than they can chew. Yeah. Like, the effects are not always super great in uh -huh. those Marvel films. There's always something that looks a bit ropey because they decided to, you know, throw they, in the they kitchen sink. Really did bite off more than they can chew. Mm. 
But anyway, we digress. Anyway. Let's get into it. Joshua, as always, let's start with the bottoms. What's your number three bottom film? <laughs> I always feel so bad about doing the bottoms because it's like nobody sets out to make a bad <laughs> film. <laughs> no, you know? no one does set out to make a bad film, but I think you have to call them out. Yeah. All right. Otherwise, how will people... How will people improve? <laughs> this is constructive criticism. You have to alert people of their cinematic crimes. <laughs> okay, well, I feel bad about this, but my my number three bottom film of 2020 is The Craft Legacy, which uh, we did touch upon in our lockdown, the sequel reboot, I think, didn't we, where... Yes, in our lockdown yeah. reboot episode with uh, Lloyd and Sam. Lloyd was not a fan, and I hadn't seen it when we talked, when he was talking about it, but now I have seen it, and it absolutely kills me to have to say it was not good. Is it a remake of the 1990s film? It's a remake. What's it about? It's like a remake and a reboot and a sequel to the 1996 film, The Craft, which was about four teenage witches who uh, sort of find... Um, solidarity with each other you know they're kind of outcasts in California I think it is and they're they're, they're like the weirdos they're the weird kids and they find each other they just they kind of their connection awakens these these magical powers that they have and they take revenge on the people who have made their lives miserable so it's it's kind of a really the, the, the 90s film is fantastic it's a real it really is an empowering story about taking you know taking back the power and it's like why has it been so long for them if they're going to make a sequel, why is it taking so long? And then they've come out with The Craft Legacy, which is a sequel, but it's it still lifts certain things wholesale f- from the original. You know, there are scenes where they do light as a feather, stiff as a board, where they try to levitate somebody what, by just touching them as they're lying on the floor. Um, <laughs> just touching Just them. touching them on the floor. You know, it's it's all them... magical. Um <laughs> But yeah, so the, it's, it starts off differently. It's, it's about a teenager who moves to uh, a new town with her mum and they move in with her mum's new boyfriend who's played by David Duchovny. And uh, he has three sons and they're all kind of a similar age. They're all in the same high school. Uh, and obviously this girl, she's played by Kaylee Spaney, who is fantastic. Like she's got a real Winona Ryder Kaylee kind of vibe. Spaney. Kaylee Spaney. And she is humiliated at school because she has her period and everyone laughs at her apart from these three girls who sort of take her under their wing and you know it just basically How very carry yeah there is a bit of there is a bit of that but not really it's it's very plug her up, plug her up. basically yeah and like the first the first sort of hour-ish of the film is quite it's quite good like Kaylee Spaney is is actually a really interesting her character is really interesting and I like the way that they played around with um uh you know the dynamic of in this film her mum's alive and they have to have like a modern what's it called when it's like a an extended family now it's like a your chosen family something i mean something like that it's there's a there's an american phrase for like a new like two families coming together to make a new family the brady bunch um, <laughs> but there's a lovely lady yeah. Three very, very lovely girls. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just goes completely off the rails. I sense that the last half an hour was massively reshot. I don't know that for sure, but it just feels like it was a massive reshoot. And it, Does it just feel disjointed? And It feels completely and disjointed. Um, there's, there are so many things that it just gets wrong. Um, I think I just think the concept, they don't update the concept enough. It... In the 90s film, those girls really were outsiders. They they call themselves the weirdos and they really are kind of the weirdos. Whereas those, those girls who were deemed weirdos in the 90s, now they're the cool kids. So to have, you can't have them in that, in that way in a present day film because they're, they're kind of the cool kids now. They're like the edgy alternative kids. So this new Craft Legacy does it acknowledge that there were other witches back in the 90s? Does it mm. acknowledge the events of the first film? Yeah, there's, I mean, very briefly towards the end, there is a moment with that links it up to the 
to the original film and it, it's quite a fun idea but it's kind of obvious yeah it, it's just so messy and it, it tries to move it tries to update it by introducing toxic masculinity but it does it in a really ham-fisted way um, and it doesn't do it in a way that actually empowers women it just kind of ends up a bit of a mess so it's a shame and i know you probably haven't seen it so i haven't seen yeah. the original it, it doesn't really interest me and craft legacy interests me yeah even I, it's less. such a shame but sorry what's your number three my number three is the personal life of david copperfield directed by armando Iannucci. i haven't seen it oh my god there's no point don't go see it <laughs> it's adapted from the book by the ghost of christmas past himself charles dickens uh-huh. and it recounts the fictional life story of david copperfield it's a bit of a uh, victorian era rags to riches type story Mm -hmm. and all the characters that he meets along the way in his life Iannucci's previous film The Death of Stalin was a brilliant slice of sort of historical black comedy satire and it was really sort of wonderfully clever in its depiction of Stalin's closest allies Mm. in inverted commas Mm -hmm. this film is just a drag. Mm. It's so light and fluffy and it's pastel coloured. And for a comedy, it is woefully unfunny. <laughs> is it Dev Patel? Dev Patel. I mean, he's he's great, mm. Dev Patel. And it's a, it's a great, you know, bonus points for the colourblind casting. Mm. The fact that Dev Patel is um, obviously a, a actor of colour, mm. as they say these days. <laughs> um, but his mum in the film is i think played by a white lady so and it, and it's never explained it's just accepted and i think that's for something like this sort of film that sort of thing can work here but really that's the only positive mm. it feels like a very uh cheaply made light and fluffy children's christmas time afternoon program <laughs> that you put on to shut the kids up just before the queen's speech that sounds great <laughs> it 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 is not good oh. it was it was rated u so it's completely inoffensive mm. which are, is weird for him which is very weird for ianucci but also weird for charles dickens because his books and his stories are so seeped in the dark aspects of late victorian era society children in workhouses mm. children underage children being forced into labor mm-hmm. not i mean they're not even forced into labor we would call it forced labor nowadays it's just what happened yeah, just labor. kid loses his arm well who cares get another kid in we need to keep this factory going but all of these aspects in the film are just passed over with the lightest of feathery touch mm. so the film has just one consistent tone and that's the the light trickle of a lovely stream in a in a meadow <laughs> they never go into the dark woods they really skirt around and i really think if they had just alternated the tone it would have been a bit more interesting but mm. it was really really dull and i was just willing it oh. to end that makes me really sad because i think some of it shot in my hometown um which is actually also the place where dickens wrote some of the story i think dickens visited my hometown and he well i will never be going to your hometown <laughs> it's very sleepy and it's like a trickling meadow and yeah you'll probably hate it have you read any dickens being a, a, a published novelist yourself not as a grown-up no not since school i've never read any of his books i think um never. great expectations is fantastic and i I remember I remember really enjoying it when I was younger and I've enjoyed a lot of the screen adaptations, particularly the BBC one a few years ago. I don't think Great Expectations could ever live up to the hype. <laughs> They're just dooming themselves with that title, aren't they? It's a literary joke. Uh, so I've never read Great Expectations. I've never read Oliver Twist. Mm. I've never read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I've never read <laughs> Misery. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Actually, doesn't Roald Dahl make a joke about Dahl's chickens? Dahl's chickens? Yeah, I'm sure that's a Roald Dahl joke. As in what? Like mess- Dahl's chickens? Yeah, as in Charles What's Dickens. Oh! <laughs> I mean, it's the thinker. It's a thinker, Rob. Roald Dahl will be sadly missed when he dies. Okay, so Joshua, what's your number two bottom film? My number two bottom film is Blackbird, directed by Roger Michel. 
It's a remake of the Danish film Silent Heart and it stars Susan Sarandon. It's got a really starry cast, which is quite deceptive. Um, but it stars... Starry, starry cast. <laughs> playing in this bad, bad film. All the stars of Hollywood yeah. in one place. Blackbird, directed by someone I've never heard of. <laughs> Susan Sarandon plays the matriarch of this family. She has a terminal illness. She's dying for... She's suffering from motor neuron disease. And she has decided to end her life uh, with the help of her husband, played by Sam Neill. And in order to kind of give her a, a fitting send off, her family come to stay with her for the weekend and sort of live, you know, celebrate her life. And then on the Sunday, she is going to um, commit or commit euthanasia or however you're supposed to term it. Sounds <laughs> a laugh, right? I know. Um, so it's her. Is it so bad? That sounds brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it stars Kate Winslet and Mia Vashikovska as her daughters. And Who's that? Mia Vashikovska, I mean, she was in Alice in Wonderland. She was in Stoker, um, Tracks, and she's great. She's she's a really good actress. I really like her a lot. But she, in this, is playing, again, playing the, like, misunderstood tearaway. And it's just like, Mia, I thought we'd got past this. Um Kate Winslet is horribly miscast. She's she's meant to be playing this um like dowdy worrywart mother, you know, of a teenage of a teenage son who's kind of directionless and she's just Kate Winslet is one of our best actresses. She's fantastic and she's mm. so miscast in this. It's it's I feel bad for her. Um the film is just it really wants, it's like a weepy. It really wants to make you cry. It wants to be like an indie version of Stepmom, also starring Susan Sarandon as a woman dying and her family gathers around her. Um, and it doesn't make any serious commentary on euthanasia. It doesn't deliver any real depth to any of the characters. It throws in a, a stupid dramatic twist towards the end that is so unnecessary and completely detracts from the rest of the film what's the twist i'm never going to see it there's, there's there's just a twist about um you know susan sarandon's husband is actually sleeping with susan sarandon's best friend who is also there for the weekend but it's like well, obviously and we already kind of that's we know that that's not an issue so why is kate winslet's character going flying off the hook about it and making it into the big thing <laughs> um i mean like susan sarandon is fantastic in it she's really dignified and she she really brings the you know the requisite dramatic weight to the film but everything else around her is so so like stolid and just kind of i don't know it's just like issues but without actually wanting to explore any of those issues um and just it made me feel angry at the end of it i was like i feel like you're exploiting something really quite serious without actually having any reason to but also a wasted two hours yeah that that too yeah, exactly. When did it come out? I don't remember this coming out. It, it came out this year. I think it was. Um, it went straight to sort of streaming, digital, right? DVD. Yeah. So it could have been great, and it just didn't. It didn't work for me, sadly. My number two is Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig. Are you kidding? It's <laughs> what is wrong with you? That's one of my favourite films this based year. Based on the book. It's based on the book by Louisa May Alcott. It's also Rachel Green and Joey Tribbiani's favourite book. <laughs> it's presented in a non-linear fashion and it tells the tale of the March sisters in the late 19th century America, sort of around the Civil War era America. Joe March, played by Saoirse Ronan, wants to be a writer. The younger sister, Amy, played by Florence Pugh, wants attention. There's a love interest in Timothy Chalamet's Teddy Lawrence and then some other shit happens. (laughs) It's from the same creative teams that made Lady Bird. Yes. And that was a razor-sharp look into teenage life that had heart, that had personality. Lightning did not strike the bottle twice. Little Women (laughs) is stale and sinfully boring. I can't take this seriously. <laughs> I couldn't keep up with wow. the film. It keeps it kept jumping back and forth from different times and it also kind of suffers from the same thing that the personal life of David Copperfield suffered from. Mm-hmm. It only had one tone. 
everything that happened was almost like, oh, well, that happened. Let's move on. <laughs> I found it woefully boring. And I was just in the cinema willing it, willing it to finish. And I hadn't been that bored in the cinema since Avengers Age of Ultron. Oh, wow. And that's clearly a Obviously very, two different very different film. Films. Yeah. <laughs> One's about a insidious computer um, virus, and the other one is about a team of superheroes getting together. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, obviously, I completely What did you disagree. like about it so much? I love it. I'm, it. I saw it sort of like on the... I saw it almost a year ago. Didn't it come out on Boxing Day last year or like the 1st of January? Mm. Yeah, it came, in, it came yeah. out in January. Of course, because it's in this year, yeah. Um, I don't know why that sticks in my mind. I just loved it. I just thought it was really, really clever. I thought that it... I loved the relationship between the sisters. I loved Joe, and I loved her her kind of quest for like credibility and her struggles and... Um, like I know the story inside out I've seen I haven't actually read the book but I've seen the various other adaptations and I just thought it was like a really solidly intelligently well executed version of that story I loved the way that it played around with the structure of the story it brought its own perspective it tried to freshen it up for you know 2020 Um, yeah I just thought it was great you know i thought it was beautiful it was lovely to look at obviously timmy timothy chalamet is beautiful um i loved their relationship and i loved the fact that he's he's not the one that she's supposed to end up with and i think that the way that it plays with the flashbacks and the the structure of the story it very cleverly you know so I, I listened to a, a podcast, an interview with Greta Gerwig, where she talked about why she changed the structure. And she said, basically, whenever you have a romance in a film, when you see your your kind of hero, your so that's Joe, you see her, when you see her meeting another man, another man, meeting a man, um, you immediately, for some reason, your rom-com brain goes, she has to end up with him. And if she doesn't, I'm going to be really pissed off. So... In the original story, the first guy that she meets as a romantic interest is Laurie, played by Timothée Chalamet. And so when she doesn't end up with him, it's this real... You almost feel a bit cheated. Whereas with this film, Greta Gerwig very cleverly first shows her interacting with the... the is he German? Like the professor that she meets at, um, at school or at her boarding house. I forgot where it was. Um, so you're kind of you when they do end up together, it feels right. It doesn't feel jarring. Um, it's right. really it's a really really clever switch that I think works really well in the film. But only if you are aware of the story beforehand. So is mm. this a film where you need to have seen or you need to have seen the the, the version from the nineties, um, or you need to have read the book in order to get this one? I just think that... I get that there's some woke stuff that's been put into it it Mm. it is a very woke (laughs) film and that's perfectly fine because it's good to you know it would have been completely and utterly 100% stale if you just went with the original tone and you Mm. went with the original purpose of the story so it's good to to infuse it with some 21st century uh sort of uh, twists Mm. which I'm perfectly fine with but in order to understand those do you have to have experienced the film before or the the story before is this just a, so. an after taste no i don't think so i just i think that um i think that perhaps the flashbacks could become confusing if you weren't familiar with the material because social ronan doesn't really age in the flashbacks so you're a bit like okay oh oh she's there now oh now she's there but oh okay so it's a flashback so i think that it probably is one of those films that rewards a second viewing, Rob. <laughs> because you'll you'll be. Able I will to... watch it. I think I will watch it again. I think it's uh, visually it, it's it's gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's really beautiful in an unst- understated way. Amy's dresses are just to die for, and I don't really care about that stuff. But she looks amazing. All the clothes are amazing. I don't think we needed Meryl Streep. Oh, At yeah. times when Meryl Streep does a cameo, the film becomes about 
yeah. Meryl Streep and it completely stops the film because they might as well put a placard on the on the screen that says, hey kids, look, it's Meryl Streep. Yeah. I just think it's so clever and I love the way, I love the the way that she that Greta Gerwig cleverly juxtaposes things. So so in the in the uh linear telling of the story, Beth gets sick, Beth recovers, you know, it all seems hunky dory and then Beth dies. And in this version you get to see both at the same time. And I think that gives it's such an interesting sort of experiment in storytelling and, and in, in editing that has such a a deep like a profound effect on on the audience i felt i just yeah i thought it was really clever because you know she's gonna die so i thought it was just very she falls cleverly. in the ice and gets a cold doesn't she yeah yeah and then later on i think she gets ill from something else i can't remember now but I just remember that shot of, of Joe coming down the stairs to the kitchen table and you see it twice. You see it when she's alive and you see it when she's dead and it's just absolutely gut-wrenching. And then after she's okay. dead, you see her again in flashback. So it's almost like, oh, it's it's very clever. It's very, very clever. Okay, well, I will endeavour to rewatch it when it comes on video on demand. I was going to say on video. When it comes to home video. <laughs> when it comes to home video. <laughs> okay, what's your number one bottom film? <laughs> of 2020 my number one bottom film of 2020 is Roald Dahl's The Witches oh. yeah it's um Roald's Chickens it's uh Dahl's Chickens yeah oh Dahl's Chickens it's just it's another one where the the original idea is fantastic and I love the idea of setting it in 1960s Alabama um it it casts the you know the orphan hero Jazir Bruno as a person of color and his grandmother is Octavia Spencer also a person of color and it's kind of like it is steeped mm-hmm. in that that sort of Alabama environment and it, it's the first the first sort of thirty minutes of the film do that really really effectively and I love that it it kind of changes the context and it puts the you know African American spin on Roald Dahl's story so. The stories that that grandma tells about her her what what her experience of witches in the past, um, it it then it tells a completely different story that is um, that takes into account sort of the African American experience, and I think it does it really effectively, and that's fantastic. But as soon as you get to the hotel, um, and Anne Hathaway comes in, hamming it up like crazy, that it just forgets to bother doing any of the the interesting sort of segregation stuff and it just becomes a really odd like too puerile for actually Roald Dahl you know Roald Dahl was intelligent with his um sort of gross out humor whereas this is is just ridiculous and yeah it it follows the it very it follows the framework of the story so everyone knows a story about a kid who discovers witches are real he goes off to a hotel with his grandmother and lo and behold the grand high witch is there and he gets turned into a mouse and they have to fight back to stop the grand high witch um unveiling her plan which is to turn all the children in the world into mice um so that is very much what it does but it introduces like a bookend the child is no longer a child. child. Child is a mouse. He's a mouse. <laughs> go, to your, go to your home. Go to your home. Is there any of that kind of uh, quotable humour? No. Because the first one by Nicholas Rogue is outrageously dark. Yeah. And brilliantly quotable. It's, it's a gr- It really is a grown-up horror film, you know? It's, it's mm. a horror film that kids can watch as well. It's genuinely creepy. Like the, even the stuff yeah. with um, the girl in the painting and um, when the witch turns up underneath the tree and tries to get him to come down. Chocolate. Luke. Yeah. All boys like chocolate. Don't you like chocolate? Yeah. Terrifying. Really creepy. Um, and this one but this is new really one, cartoony. Flat. Yeah. Here's a question. Mm. And it's the Robert Zemeckis issue. I caught um, bits of Back to the Future Part 2 on television the other day. And it is, it's brilliantly repeatable. It's brilliantly watchable. Those three films, he was on fire in that period. Mm. He did Death Becomes Her. He did Roger Rabbit in that period. What happened to him? Yeah, because then he went down the Polar Express route. He got on the Polar Express. Well, I was going to say, is this just CGI and mocap? Yeah. For no reason other than because they know how to use the technology. Yeah. 
Like the grand the grand high witch in this one, she kind of like floats around in the air and um and obviously there was the furora over her her um hands resembling hands. Yeah. Yeah. And they also like augment her so that when she smiles, like her, her smile is like the Joker. So they've all got like it's a really it's, actually this is one of the like, the cool ideas is that she has almost like a Joker scar either side of her mouth. Yeah. And um and that that's because when she smiles, like she gets this terrifyingly enormous mouth. But then they have all the witches have these scars, and I think, well, surely just the Grand High Witch should have that, and all the others are meant to blend in with society. Where do they get those scars from? I don't know. I guess it's part of the uh, initiation. Yeah, (laughs) the pencil. (laughs) I wish there was a moment where she used a pencil. This was meant to come out in the cinema, but it went straight to Disney Plus. It went to streaming services. Yeah, it went to streaming services, so you could rent it for like 20 quid or something. Um, Where did you see it? I got a screener to review it. Ah. Yes. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. That sounds like a wasted two hours. It was so disappointing because I really enjoyed the first half an hour or so and then it just completely lost its way and it doesn't know... It it decides to just just be for kids, like it, it's just for like six year olds. But it's almost it's almost too creepy for six year olds. So then, but it's not funny or cool enough to be for like ten year olds. So it's it's just a wasted opportunity, I think. Because considering the cast and like Anne Hathaway, they she she's great. I think in, she's really great in most things. But in this, I think that they someone decided that she is actually really freaking hilarious as the Grand High Witch. And so they give her almost too much. They give her too much screen time. And if they'd reined it back a bit, then she actually would have been more effective. But there's moments where you just yeah. see her chatting to somebody and it's like, that's not funny and it's not scary. So why is it in here? You should hide the monster. Right. Show the monster as little as possible. It makes them scary. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that was what? The Witches directed by Zemeckis is your top bottom. Yes. My top bottom. <laughs> film of 2020. My number one bottom film, probably going to be just as controversial as oh, God. my second. What's it going to be? It's Tenant by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> That's the worst film made this year. <laughs> It's a subjective view, remember? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, a CIA agent, only known as the protagonist, played by John David Washington, is drawn into an operation seemingly spearheaded by a scientific organisation known as Tenet. They've created bullets that can go backwards in time. Robert Patterson pops up as Neil, <laughs> and they join forces to defeat bad guy Andre, played by Kenneth Branagh, and then, again, some other shit happens. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know how to explain the plot of this film. Because the top two issues I have with the film are this. And it's in reverse order. Number two, top issue. It's really confusing to know what's going on. There is such a lack of communication from Christopher Nolan, the storyteller, to the audience. Mm. Even at the same time, it's really obvious about what's going to happen. The entire palindrome nature of the film means that you know exactly when key moments will be reversed. So character reveals are not a surprise Mm. in the slightest. So even though you don't really know what's going on with the plot, the, the linchpins throughout, the pinpoints, you know when they're coming and you know who's who and why's why. Mm-hmm. The confusing nature seems to be an obvious conscious choice by Nolan, but it's a strange one because it causes my number one issue with the movie is that it's really boring. And for a two and a half hour movie, it's an unforgivable sin because it is an adventure film. It's, it's basically another James Bond film uh-huh. of another name uh-huh. made in the Christopher Nolan style. It shouldn't be boring. And if you're asking people to put down money and spend two and a half hours sat there watching his indulgent story, because that's all storytelling is, really. Yeah. It's a storyteller being indulgent. Yeah. It's so indulgent. And it's so Christopher Nolan. It's like he went through his previous nine or ten films and said, what is it that makes me? Let me get a checklist of five or six things. Uh-huh. Tick, 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 tick. Let me make a film around these. Uh-huh. 
it's boring i was willing it to end it is unbelievably loud and i thought maybe it was because it was the first film i saw in the cinema after lockdown mm. i had to put my headphones in because i didn't have any earplugs with me uh-huh. so for the last hour and 45 i put my headphones in to block out it was unbelievable why is, loud. why is that dialogue dialogue i i don't know because I'm not the only one to complain about this. It is unbelievably loud. Mm. And dialogue is buried into the sound mix. So did he direct the cinemas to turn it up? No, I think it's been designed this way. It's nothing to do with them saying, hey, can you just turn the volume up a level? Yeah. The explosions mm. are unnecessarily loud. But the dialogue is buried into the mix. Uh-huh. So it's difficult to understand what they're saying. And when you do hear what they're saying, you don't know what it is they're talking about. <laughs> I have the pro- I have that problem with RTV all the time. Like for some reason, if you put on a movie, you have to change the au- like the audio settings on the TV so that the dialogue doesn't get lost behind the music. And then if you turn it back to TV, you have to like change the sound settings so that it doesn't get. It's really weird. I don't understand why there's a different setting for TV and movies. And sometimes you can't get your VCR to stop flashing twelve. <laughs> Hate that. It's a real letdown. Mm. It's a massive, massive letdown. And I really think when people do those career retrospectives in in years to come, that this is going to be definitely at the bottom of the pile when they say, "Mm, what films represent Christopher Nolan? It's Mm. not going to be this. It's going to be right down there. I would put Interstellar above this, and I hate Interstellar. (laughs) Do you like Inception? I love Inception. Is it like that? No, because Inception is fun. Hmm. And Inception, you know exactly what's going on. Christopher Nolan has a brilliant skill of taking very complicated concepts, whether they're real concepts like the prestige, the idea of, you know, the structure of a, of a magic act and translating it to the screen in a visual, in a visual way and in a, in a storytelling structure. Mm. Inception, he did that as well. Even some of the... Um, some of the philosophical and psychological concepts in his Batman trilogy are brilliantly explored and explained. Mm. Look at Memento. This one is a real, real self-indulgent uh, letdown. That's a shame. I haven't seen it, but um, I didn't really. I'm not. I was never. I wasn't particularly excited to see it anyway, just because I feel like you kind of know what you're going to get, and. Mm. Um, I do I do admire Christopher Nolan for not pandering to like the lowest common denominator. Like the worst thing I think about a lot of big Hollywood films is that they over explain everything and they almost assume that the audience is a bit thick. So like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, everything was explained every second along <laughs> yes. the way because it didn't yes. allow for any interpretation. Um so I I do sort of admire the fact that nolan is able to aim high and he he doesn't really he doesn't allow for for the fact that people aren't necessarily as clever as he is um and i think that it's great that he's bringing that cleverness back to sci-fi and he's doing that very austere sci-fi thing but if if it's at the expense of the fact that this is entertainment then something's gone wrong i think yes um, yes, because you can't expect people to part with upwards of fifteen, twenty pounds per ticket mm. and not give them something that they enjoy. Mm. Can we talk about some good films now? <laughs> yes, let's talk about some good films. So, Joshua, let's flip it. What's your number three top film of two thousand twenty? My number three top film of twenty twenty is And Then We Danced, directed by Levan. Arkin or Aiken I think he's Swedish it's Arkin Mm. Um, and I think this year uh, sort of almost as much as 2017 was you know my purple patch for the gay cinema um, yeah 2020 has had so and then we danced it has Ammonite Dating Amber Summer of 85 Matthias and Maxime Monsoon Um, they're all the great ones that I've seen that are fantastic then on the flip side there was Stage Mother and Uncle Frank, which weren't very good sort of gay cinema <laughs> releases. But I think that this year has actually been great for LGBTQ plus cinema. Um, 
And I think the best... Lee Francis is in there twice. Lee Francis is in there twice? Yeah, because he did Ammonite, but mm. he also did God's Own Country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's leading yeah. the pack. Yeah. He's leading the pack. Um, Him and his beard. And Then We Danced is set in conservative Tbil- Tbilisi in Georgia. I think that's how you say it. Tbilisi? <laughs> it's, very, it's very difficult for a... I always forget there's a country called Georgia. I'm yeah. only ever remi- reminded of it at Eurovision. <laughs> I know. I always, I'm always like, Georgia, that's a state in America. It's in America. Georgia. <laughs> uh, the film follows competitive dancer Mirab, who's played by Levin Gel Bacchiani. And he He's is... He's played by 11 girls. Levin Gel Bacchiani. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> Just 11 girls all stood on each other's shoulder wearing a very long trench coat. <laughs> That's why it's my top three film. Because <laughs> it's batshit crazy. Um, and it's about his, you know, it's kind of like his coming out, coming out of age feelings when a new dancer arrives in class. Um, it's student Irakli played by Baki Vash, Valishvili. I really need to learn how to pronounce these names. Um, and it's just it's just like a really, really sweet romance between these two dancers. Um, but the fact that it's set in Georgia just makes it so, so fascinating because I, for one, I'm completely ignorant of anything really to do with sort of that. Is it like the cold... Uh, what's it called like the east anything outside of a 90s teen movie you know nothing (laughs) not a thing um Uh, it it sounds like it's an eastern european country yeah it sounds like like... it's an old iron curtain uh yes block uh, what's it called soviet block country yeah it's very conservative it's it's looks i mean it's it's quite a poor country he sleeps on the sofa in his sort of grandmother's apartment he you know he shares the living room with his brother um and it's it's very much you know being gay is is not allowed it's not a thing you know so so mirab who's the main guy he has a girlfriend but um he isn't particularly interested in her like he likes her as a person but then when irakli comes in it's like oh shit like this is this is for me um and yeah it, it just really depicts that restrictive environment so so well um, like the and the sense of tradition, like the dancing isn't seen as sort of like an effeminate pastime the way that I think it has traditionally been seen in the Western world. You know, it's, you know, ballet dancers and stuff in in Georgia. It, it's like a real sort of honorable thing. You dance because it's tradition and it's masculine and it's um, yeah, it's part of Georgia. And so it's got this really interesting sort of texture to it to it and not only that it, it knows it knows the gay cliches it, it knows about the tortured coming out stories it knows all about those and so it doesn't play into that trap in any way um and it kind of wrong foots what you think is going to happen and even though it doesn't necessarily have a really happy ending it it's really still joyful um and it's it is like we were talking about lee francis it is like the great a great companion piece for god's own country it's got that that sort of grubby unvarnished feel to it and it feels like it's about real people and the actors are all fantastic um it's on bfi player at the moment i think so i really yeah recommend i was gonna say it. it's it's on my bfi list yeah i really recommend it I keep hovering over it, but then I just keep thinking, mm. I'm too tired to watch something with subtitles. I'm not going to give it my full attention. Mm. So when I have a moment that I'm not completely zonked, I'm going to watch mm-hmm. it. So I'll Do probably it. watch it over Christmas. Do it. It's so, so good. My number three top film of 2020 is a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, directed by Jeff Krolowski. Mm, tell no, me I've more. I've never heard of him either. Yeah. <laughs> um, it explores the well-known practices of social media companies like Twitter, Facebook, Google, those kind of people, and the way that they use unregulated techniques to data rake and data target uh, and use algorithms to keep users addicted to their platforms mm. in order to, in order to maximize revenue 
and profit. So the film looks at the effects these addictions are creating in users. Things like depression and alienation. Um, there's a, a horrific statistic saying that non-fatal self-harming in pre-teen girls has increased 186%. Direct, and that is directly linked to their them using social media. God. Um, it also brings body issue into mm. into play here. What I love about it, it's told from an inside perspective. So the people that they've got being interviewed have all worked in high positions at these companies, at Google, at Facebook, at Tumblr. They've even got the guy who was part of the team who was spearheading the advertising revenue mo- business model that Google would eventually adopt. Mm. God. So they've got the people who have created these mm. issues who are now very much against these wow. uh, techniques. Alongside the interviews, they've got this sort of fictionalized vignettes with this uh, family, and we're seeing the real-life negative effects of social media on the family. Mm. It's a really powerful piece of filmmaking the algorithm in the film is represented by three characters each representing a different aspect of what the 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 algorithm does uh uh data selling um revenue engagement and it's played by the guy who played pete in mad men i can't remember the actor's name oh uh vincent Thingy. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was an angel as well. <laughs> thingy, yes. Um, he's an angel. Yeah, he was an angel. Oh, I had no idea. Um, I hate social media. You know that. Yeah. I, I don't use my Facebook account. Um, if I didn't need my Facebook account in order to do um, sponsored posts on Instagram for my photography stuff, I'd get rid of Facebook and I'd get rid of Instagram. I don't have a personal Twitter account. I only have the the one for the podcast mm. and I always have have to force myself to to use it just to keep a bit of engagement going. I did an experiment this morning. I purposely haven't opened Instagram yet. Mm-hmm. And I can see the algorithm is wondering why and the algorithm is sending me push notifications. I've got six six wow. push notifications just from this morning wow. because it knows I'm not opening and it's trying to get me to open it. And this is why have you got do. notifications on? I have mine off. I don't have any notifications whatsoever because I can't live with them. Cause I use Instagram for business purposes. Mm. So if a message comes through from someone that I might end up shooting, I don't want to miss it. Uh, okay. And that's the, that's the really shitty thing because yeah. every industry now is completely encircled around social media Mm. you said to me that you know the 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 new authors Mm. that get published the publishers like you to have a big social media following for me that's ridiculous because me having x amount of followers on instagram doesn't make me a better photographer it just Mm. means i've got x amount of people following me on instagram and the same with Mm. you you having however many people on twitter won't equal writing skills no so there's got to come to a point where the industries just go, what are we doing? Why are we mm-hmm. so concerned with social media and the followers? It's ridiculous. Let's get back to talent. Yeah. And I've noticed that my my anxiety, um, my like my general level of anxiety has massively increased since I've started using social media. So I, I'm always worrying about if i've posted something that can be read in an offensive way you know if if someone's going to um target me on twitter for saying something that is out of context or you know maybe i misspoke you know it's trying to cancel you exactly like there's this real fear i think that that what you do can be catastrophized into something enormous on on social media but i mean in reality mm. and yeah, and these things make headlines as well you know jk rowling's yeah. um stuff that she put on twitter made headlines and and like but that's because she's jk rowling true uh, yeah i mean i'm not going to say jk rowling yeah. but um but there's you're not jk rowling you're not 
the most famous children's author, David Walliams. Oh, God, yeah. But I, the thing, that documentary does sound very, very interesting, but I also find it particularly interesting that it's on Netflix and Netflix equally has been accused of encouraging addictive behavior because there's the, you know, it, it, they start <laughs> yeah. episodes immediately. They they sort of, you know, they really, it seems like they really want you to yeah. keep watching Netflix. Keep watching, watch next. What do you want to watch next? Here's something else you can but watch. In in Netflix defense, they're not doing what Google do. Yeah. In social media terms, what is the product? The product is not the platform. We're the product mm. because it's our information, our data that Google are raking. Mm. They are they're stealing our information and they're selling it on to people for money. That's how they make the money, plus the adverts. Yeah. The idea that all these social media platforms, the interface, you have to pull down in order to refresh. Mm. It's exactly how casinos get people hooked on the one-arm bandit slot machines you're pulling something down hopefully this is going to be the one i'm going to get the the three bells it's a bell it's a bell oh it's a fruit you win nothing yeah constantly dragging that interface down is there going to be a really cool image is there going to be a tweet Mm -hmm. it's all pulled down yeah i know that my anxiety has dropped Mm -hmm. since i left facebook since i i cancelled my own Twitter account. I just got rid of it. And I had like, I tweeted like 30,000 times in however many years. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. What did I gain from that? Yeah. Fuck all. (laughs) Because it was nonsense. It was just hashtag the X Factor. I like this song. Hashtag (laughs) vote for Wagner. (laughs) Wagner. (laughs) So I would like in the next five years, to have got to a place career-wise that I don't need mm. social media. I know plenty of people who are not on social media. They're not in the creative industries. They don't need... I think, you know, the creative industries is so connected to social media because if you want to find a, a, a photographer who, who shoots in the style that you want your next project to be shot in, oh, I'll just pop on Instagram and see what's there. Mm. But then people like Robert Eggers don't have social media. Yeah. And he didn't have social media before he was a filmmaker. And he hasn't jumped on social media since making it big with the Vavitch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people are able to do it without. I would love to get rid of all my social media. But what would you do with all your time? I'd read your books. <laughs> get off social media, Rob. <laughs> so what's your number two top film of 2020? My number two top film of 2020 is Relic, not to be confused with the 90s film The Relic, which I also love. (laughs) Um, Relic is about a a Melbourne worker called Kay. She's played by Emily Mortimer and her elderly mother goes missing. And so Kay returns to her family home in the middle of nowhere in Australia with her daughter, Sam, played by Bella Heathcote. And they try to track down Kay's missing mother and Sam's missing grandmother. So the the grandmother played by Robin Nevin. She eventually just kind of turns up one morning um, and there's, you know, doesn't really give any reason for where, why she disappeared, where she's been. And her behavior starts to spiral and it you know Kay and Kay and her daughter start to worry that something's wrong with her but also there might be something in the house and that they they sense a presence in the house is it a horror it's a horror film but it's very much a a domestic um kind of psychological horror um it's almost entirely set in the grandma's home and the surrounding countryside and so it's very much like a tight, almost like a locked box horror. Like they're, they're, they're stuck in this house with something or maybe not. And um, director... I've never heard of it. Never heard of it. It came out, it was released in cinemas uh, in October, I believe. It's directed by Natalie Erica James, who is a Japanese-Australian filmmaker. I think it's her debut. And she gives the film this this real, it's like dark, it's seriously dark visually. Um, but she she sort of really cleverly plays around with um, perspective and uh, 
sort of things hiding in corners and there's just an absolutely bravura sequence where um what the daughter gets lost in the house and it's i won't spoil it but it's just absolutely fantastic um and it's basically like it's it's very much along the lines of the babadook and hereditary and it's about inherited madness and it it taps into themes of sort of aging and memory and fate um and it's just i find it really emotional like the the ending really really caught me off guard and i think that it's a, an extremely divisive ending but for me it worked absolutely perfectly and i loved it and the ending is what made me fucking fall head over heels in love with this film basically so it's elevated horror as they say these days elevated yeah because it's like it's in it's on, along the same lines as like saint maud which also is almost also fantastic came out this year and uh mm. it's it's horror that is saying something interesting and it's not taking easy it's not sort of looking for easy answers and it's not just out to it's not like a boo scare horror kind of thing it, it's like fascinating <laughs> boo scare boo scare <laughs> pixar's boo scare i will add it to my list because that sounds really good mm, i absolutely loved it and emily mortar is fantastic in it and so is uh robin nevin who plays her mother and i just love the way again like like as we were saying with nolan like it doesn't tell you anything it just lets you figure it out for yourself um and I just love it when films do that, you know, and, and the film plays around with dreams and stuff, but the dreams aren't necessarily telling you what they think, what you think they are. So, yeah, I'd love to know what you think. Of it. Is it self-contained or have they left it open for a sequel? Oh, it's completely self-contained. Good. Yes. It's just I one story. self-contained film. Yeah. It's fantastic. My number two top film of 2020 is the true history of the Kelly Gang, directed by Justin Kurzel. Ah. It's adapted from the book of the same name by Peter Carey. This is the fictional account of Australia's most famous criminal, Ned Kelly, and his band of brothers as they rebel against and flee from the authorities in the late 19th century. Mm. This is the filmic equivalent of anarchy. <laughs> it is such a punk rock film. It's got such a brilliant anarchic vibe to the whole proceedings and it's kind of seeped in this dirty dusty rusty metal feeling everyone's filthy everyone's downtrodden george mckay this is his career best everyone spoke about 1917 as being his film of last year no this film mm. this is the performance he is possessed in this film He's fan. I love George McKay. He's fantastic. Everything I've seen him in, he's just transformative. Like Captain Fantastic, yeah. he's so great in. And he's not at all show busy. Mm. No, he's not he's, at all. He's, he's an actor. very much an actor who just wants to make great films. Yeah, I really want to see this. I've. I remember it came out just before lockdown happened. I think possibly. Yeah, sort of yeah. February time. And it looked fantastic, and I really, really, really wanted to see it, and then it just didn't. <laughs> But um, it's on. It's on Prime. Oh I think. yeah, it is. I've added to my I watched list. it again. Yeah, Nicholas Hort is brilliant in it. Oh, but he's yeah. always brilliant. He's. I think he's becoming one of our best actors. He is wonderfully devilish. Mm. He's so. He's such a bastard in this film. <laughs> and Essie Davis as Ned's mum, just so so tragic. Okay. Her life is so shit. <laughs> I think that Justin Kurzel has a real talent for sort of mining really quite dark and depressing stories and giving them this like this like rest like a resting quality like have you seen snowtown i have not which i think i don't think it was his debut oh no it was his debut it was in 2011 and it's about um the snowtown murders in like a small town small suburb in um adelaide and it's just so upsetting but so so fantastic i think you would really like it it's it's dark as hell but brilliant well i started watching his version of macbeth oh um, yeah i never went back to it but i i mean visually i was absolutely loving it but i couldn't follow it because it's incomplete shakespeare mm. so <laughs> um i think i'm gonna have to sit there i've got a copy of macbeth in the no fear shakespeare 
uh, version where on the left the left page you've got the original Shakespeare and on the right you've got the English translation uh, so you, cool. you can you can work out what's going on so I think I'm going to have to sit with that book while I watch the film mm. in order to understand but visually I was absolutely loving it it felt like it was actually filmed in the middle ages mm. yeah it's that's Fassbender isn't it yes yeah it looked it's yeah. got that like murky smoky orange look to it yes yeah just completely seeped in dried blood and caked in mud yeah it's a similar feel in the true history of the kelly gang it just mm. looks like it's been filmed through rusted metal yeah i'm gonna it's on my list i'm gonna watch it good I will. joshua what is your number one film of 2020 my number one film of 2020 it's been so long since i watched it but i really loved it and i i've thought about it all year is parasite by bong joon ho I don't think this has ever happened. Is it yours as well? My top film is Parasite by Bong Joon-ho. <laughs> I'm so glad. It is just fantastic. And even though I haven't seen it since January, it's stuck with me. And I just think, I just love the fact that it won four Oscars. It won not only Best Picture, it also won Best International Film, Best Director, mm-hmm. Best Screenplay. He beat out Scorsese. He beat out Joker, which was the big awards contender. He beat out Sam Mendes, yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. I love that we live in a world where this film won the Oscars, you know, who are often very misguided in their in their winning choices. Yes. I just think it's just fantastic. It's it's I love the I love stories that are so specific in their location and in in their characters and yet are universal in their themes. So this is about a poor family, um, an impoverished South uh, Korean family living in this like sort of basement flat that floods when there's heavy rainfall and they get a chance at escaping this life when the son is hired as a tutor for a sort of posh rich family and each member of the family then insinuate themselves into the family so the mum becomes the maid the dad becomes uh is he a gardener the or driver the driver, the driver of course yeah and I just love I just love the idea. I just think it's an absolutely genius idea, basically. And it's so well done. But then halfway through the film, it goes in the direction that you just would not have predicted. Yes. Yeah. Because it's wild, but it's 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 realistic and contained enough that it doesn't throw the film off course. It, it you just go with it because you mm. just go, Well, of course this could happen. Of course. Yeah. But it's but it works because yes, it's a freaking amazing twist. But it's it's not so off the cards because you've seen this family already do what the the woman you know the previous housekeeper did as well. So it's mm. um it's it's very very clever to be like yeah they fired that poor old housekeeper, but actually she had already kind of done what this family had done. So it, it works. It's just, it takes it to another level, literally. They, they go down into the basement and, you know, it really ups yes. the ante hugely. And there's a lot of that going down mm. and then coming back up again. Mm. There's a lot of that in, in this film. And, and you know, it's Bon Joon-ho has, has come back to this theme of rich and poor many, many times. Just look at mm. Snowpiercer. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the black and white version yet? No, I haven't. I would like to watch it. So, released in color, and then uh, a black and white version appeared on Amazon Prime last month. So I've seen it. Um, I don't miss the color, but I also don't fully see the point of the black and white. Mm. I have no problem with either. Um, I wasn't missing the color when I was watching the black and white, but also I don't fully see the point in the black and white because Mm. i don't think it adds anything certainly doesn't take anything away because good writing is good writing good acting is good acting good directing is good directing it's a curious little afterthought i guess yeah didn't bong joon ho say that he originally envisioned it in black and white so that's kind of why he wanted to do it yes yeah and he said that it allows you to play around more with tone and he was going to use tone to sort of elevate um the the rich versus poor aspect and i was looking out for that but i couldn't really decipher Mm. what he was doing if he were if indeed he was doing anything yeah so if you haven't seen it yet 
watch it in color or watch it in black and white i think it's going to be the same experience because it's really about the story and how it's told through framing not necessarily color or or tone unless i'm missing something it'll be interesting once you watch the black and white version if you see anything different Mm. it is interesting talking about tone because obviously the towards the end of the film it erupts into sort of almost horror movie style um sort of confrontation but we've almost Mm. even though it is quite shocking and we've already had some quite horror imagery anyway so it doesn't jar um, like there's the yeah. shot of the stairs where you suddenly see something and it's like, oh something. my God, like fucking terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And it just, it sets up the ending very well, I think, tonally. Yeah. I mean, that's the other version of tone. When I said tone, I mean yeah, yeah, the yeah. different shades of black and white. Um, <laughs> so there's yay. so much tone. So much tone. So much tone. Yay for Parasite. Thanks, Parasite. You actually united our taste somehow. <laughs> our very different taste. <laughs> our venn diagram of taste and there's a small overlap and inside (laughs) sits bone joon ho holding his four oscars so that was our top and bottom films of 2020 it's over josh the year is it's over 2020 is done be sure to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify and acast so you don't miss any of our episodes and we are on twitter even though rob doesn't want to be so we're at Tornstubs Pod, and come and like, come and cheer him up, and help him to 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 realise that Twitter isn't that bad, really. Well, it is. It's disgusting. <laughs> we're off to see what's in the basement. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut.